going to begin with a question. The question is this. Have you stopped growing in Christ? Have you stopped growing in Christ? Growth is a very integral part of our service to God. God expects that every day we are increasing in our knowledge of His will, in our understanding of His will, in our ability to develop the fruits of the Spirit, in our ability to be self-controlled, in our ability to grow in love and kindness. Growth is a necessary part of walking with God. And growth is not something that just accidentally happens. It's intentional. It's deliberate. It's purposive on the part of those who are doing the growing. And so again, I ask the question, have you stopped growing in Christ? Because sometimes I think we reach a level of complacency. We are almost like uh, those in the workplace that reach a level of security where they kick back and say, I've got it made, now I can just put it on autopilot and coast. Uh, maybe if you're a teacher, it means getting tenure. Uh, maybe if you do what I do, it means making partner. But just the notion of, okay, I've arrived now, I've done it, now I'm on easy street, now I can just coast my way in. That's not what we read in the New Testament about how a Christian is to live his or her life. Growth is a continuous process. And if we're doing it right, we'll be growing to the very last breath we take or when the Lord comes back. And so, again, have you stopped growing in Christ? That'll be the title of the lesson this morning. And the first point I want to make is a very important one, is this. In order to grow in Christ, we must first be made alive. In order to grow in Christ, we must first be made alive. You probably have talked with religious people and denominations who talk about what they perceive to be growth and how they are growing and developing in Christ and how they are maturing in Christ. And yet there's a problem with that concept in that we know that something cannot grow if it's dead. Something cannot grow until it has first been made alive. And so a necessary precondition of growth is to be made alive in Christ, and then everything that happens is growth. Now, I'm, I'm sure there are people outside of Christ who may perceive that they are growing, may think that they are growing, but it just cannot happen because, again, a fundamental principle both in the secular world and the spiritual world, is that things cannot grow until they've first been made alive. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In order to grow, we must first be made alive. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The Bible says this, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so he is talking to Christians, those who are baptized believers, those who are in the body of Christ, and he reminds them of their history, of a chronological sequence, that there was a time before they had put on Christ, there was a time before they obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, you were what? You were dead in your trespasses. In fact, he includes himself saying, we all were once dead. We were all walking according to the prince of the power of the air, reference to Satan. He said there was a period of time when we were lost, and he describes that period of being lost as being dead, spiritually dead. And in that state, we could not spiritually grow. When we are estranged from Christ, when we are not a part of the body of Christ, it is impossible for us to spiritually grow. But the good news for these people to whom he's writing is that you have been made alive. Through what? Through obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is enabled by the power of Jesus' blood. He says you can grow. You've been made alive. And so when people around us talk about spiritually growing, and we obviously are not out to hurt anybody's feelings, but the fundamental premise is, unless God has made you alive, you cannot possibly spiritually grow. That applies to you, that applies to me, it applies to everybody. There's no exception to that. So we're, again, not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, but the fact of the matter is, in order to grow, one must first be made alive. And that's the message that we want to share with people. With love, absolutely. With humility, absolutely. But it's a necessary life. A lot of people have deceived themselves into thinking they're doing something they are not, which is growing. You cannot grow unless you're first made alive. The second point I want to make from the Bible is this. Spiritual growth is a commandment, not an option. Spiritual growth is a commandment, not an option. It, it's not aspirational. It's not something that would be nice to do, or you know, I'd like for you to do it, or that'd be my preference. But it's an absolute command. Let us look at a passage that will illustrate that principle for us. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. 2 Peter, the third chapter, verses 14 through 16. Spiritual growth is a commandment, not an option. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Through 18, I'm sorry. 2 Peter 3, 14 through 18. The Bible says this, Therefore, beloved... Looking forward to these things, the second coming of Christ has just been talked about in the earlier verses of that chapter. Be diligent to be found by Him, a reference to Jesus when He comes back, in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. Now listen to verse 18. Oh. But grow, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And so he gives a warning to these brethren, saying that when the Lord comes back, you need to be careful that you're found by Him, blameless and without spot. In other words, be ready for the Lord's second coming. We don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. But whenever it comes, be prepared. Be ready for the Lord's coming. And He says, I'll give you a warning. Don't be like others who are moved away from their faith, suggesting that it is absolutely possible for a person who had been saved to lose that salvation. Otherwise, the warning makes no sense. And the opposite of that, he says, but grow 
in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's interesting about that verse is, what kind of sentence is that? That's a command. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a command. And if it tells me to grow, what does that mean? It's possible for me to do something to effectuate, to cause, to stimulate that growth. I'm being held accountable for my own growth. We oftentimes, when we uh, think that people are not growing as they should, we have all kinds of reasons why that's not happening. Uh, we say, well, maybe it's because the preaching is not what it ought to be. Uh, we say maybe the Bible class teaching is not what it ought to be. We say maybe the elders are not leading as they should. All of which may be true, but ultimately, when it comes down to it on Judgment Day, if you have not grown, whose responsibility is it? It's mine, because Peter told me through inspiration, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's my responsibility. I'm supposed to make sure that I grow. I'm the one responsible. I'm the one who has to answer for my soul. And the fact that the Lord gives that to us, knowing full well, better than any of us, what we are capable of, what our limitations are, what our minds can do and not do. If the Lord says, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, guess what? It is eminently possible for me to do so. So no one can stand excused on Judgment Day and say, well, I just couldn't do that. I didn't know how to do that. didn't have the capability. Oh, absolutely you did. The Lord never put something on us that's not possible to be done. And so we've got to take responsibility for our spiritual growth. We need to be growing. And we need to be able to look at ourselves and look back ten years or five years or a year, and are we making progress? Do we know more now about God's Word than we knew back then? Have we understood more about God's Word than we knew back then? Have you fought and won some battles against Satan? Are there some things that used to bedevil you, but now you've put those things behind and moved on? I'm not saying Satan leaves you alone. He doesn't. He'll come at you another way. But you ought to be able to look back and see, I fought and won some battles. That's growth. Are you becoming more loving? Are you becoming more kind? Are you becoming more self-controlled? Are you able to control your anger? Are you making headway? Are you making progress? Do you think about yourself in terms of taking a spiritual inventory? In other words, do you take the Word of God, open it up, being honest with yourself, and seeing where you fall short, and develop a plan to overcome those weaknesses and deficiencies? Growth is intentional. Growth is deliberate. Growth is purposive. It doesn't just happen overnight. You don't get growth by virtue of just showing up and being around it by osmosis. It's something that we have to be very deliberate about. And we're held accountable for that. We have to grow in Christ. And if we don't grow, what is that? 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. The New King James Version says sin is transgression of God's law. If God tells us to do something and we fail to do it, let's call it what it is. It's sin. If God tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we fail to do so, that is sin for which we'll be held accountable. And so we must grow. And I hope, you know, we spend so much time in our jobs, spend so much time in our academic careers and schools evaluating, testing, seeing where we fall short. What do we understand? How well have we mastered the material? And those things have their place. I'm not in any way criticizing them. But how much more important, if we're going to spend that much time evaluating where we stand in terms of our secular capabilities and our jobs and our studies, how much more important to evaluate where are you in Christ? Where are you in Christ? Do we do that? 
Christianity is very introspective religion. You have to look at yourself. And you have to look at yourself not as your mama looks at you, but look at yourself as you really are through the lenses of biblical inspiration. I'll be honest with you, folks. When you look at the Bible through those lenses and look at yourself, oftentimes you will not like what you see. And that's happened to me. Because the Bible reveals who you are. It, as the Bible says in Hebrews 4, 12, it reveals the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It tells you about yourself. If you'll be honest, don't go in self-deluded. Don't go in with this kind of pious sense of self. But being honest and evaluating, this is what the Lord says I ought to be, and then what am I? And where you fall short, let's decide to grow in those areas. And even in the areas you deem strength, there's still plenty of room for growth. Does anybody ever reach a level where they say, well, I've done all the spiritual growing I need. I just need to stay as is. I'll be okay. Of course not. There's always room. The point being this. Growth is a commandment. It must be done. Let me give you a third point. The third point is this, and it follows from the second point. God expects growth from His children. God expects growth from His children. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses 11 through 16. God expects growth from His children. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. The Bible says, And He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, drive the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, verse 15, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. God has put in place the tools that we need for growth. That's why God expects growth from His children. God has done His part. God has put the apostles and the prophets and the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists, and He says, for the purpose of what? For equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So we get the tools that we need to do the work God has from us, and God has provided a mechanism for us to develop those tools. And so when we come, as we've come today, and we have an opportunity to hear the Word of God, we are being equipped for the work of ministry. When we hear the Word of God taught, when we hear the Word of God preached, we're being equipped, we're being given the tools that we need to do the work that God expects. And He expects us, what? To grow. Every part doing its share causes growth of the body. There's even a reference to the idea that there ought to be in the individual Christian's life a maturity in spirituality. That we should not always be children tossed to and fro by every doctrine that comes along, false doctrine, but we ought to be mature and complete. Why? Because again, God has provided the tools that will stimulate the growth that will take us from spiritual childhood to spiritual adulthood. So when we don't grow, whose fault is it? Again, it's not God's fault. God has put in place the things that we need to grow. Let's look again at a passage that we looked at last night, but for a different context. There we were talking about Timothy's youth and the fact that we ought to start serving God early in life. But 1 Timothy 4, 
12 through 16, I want you to see this. Again, we're talking about God expects spiritual growth from His children. 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verses 12 through 16. 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. The Bible says this, Let no one despise your youth. Be an example of the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity till I come. Give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on the hands of the eldership. Now look at verse 15. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. He tells the young man, Timothy, you meditate on these things taught by God's Word. And not only do you meditate upon him, he's already told him to read, give attention to reading, give attention to exhortation, give attention to doctrine. He says, not only do you meditate, he said, I want you to give yourself entirely to these things. You know, we have a saying in America, what is it, all things by moderation, right? Uh, I remember uh, hearing a judge talk about uh, his uh, daughter and his son-in-law, future son-in-law, and he was commenting on the young man that he was very zealous for his religion. He was very religious. And he made the comment, you know, hey, some religion is fine, but don't go too far with it. <laughs> and he thought that his future son-in-law and his family just took religion too seriously. Uh, a little moderation. Nothing moderate about what Paul tells Timothy here. He says, give yourself entirely to these things. But notice, if you do that, Timothy, what, what's going to happen? That your progress may be evident to all. What, what, what are you talking about? You're talking about spiritual growth. That your spiritual growth may be evident to all. When you meditate on these things, when you give attention to reading, when you give attention to exhortation, when you give attention to doctrine, when you give yourself entirely to these things, what's going to happen? You're going to grow in Christ, and guess what? Others will be able to see that. I don't know if you've seen that before, but I certainly have. And it is just amazing, especially when you see young people who literally grow up right before your very eyes. I'm not talking about physical stature. I'm talking about spiritually. When you see them develop in Christ, develop their knowledge, develop their understanding, develop their self-control, develop their character. It's a beautiful thing. It encourages all of us. Let me let you in on a little secret. That process is not limited to young people. That's how we grow. We as older folks, we meditate on these things. We give attention to reading. We give attention to exhortation. We give attention to doctrine. We give ourselves entirely to these things, and then you reap what you sow. You get growth. We grow by God's Word. We grow by taking advantage. We're going to talk about this a little bit later in the sermon. By taking advantage of these tools that God has put in place for our growth. And it is because of all the things that God has given to us that He absolutely expects growth from His children. And it's certainly entitled to and if we fail to return on that investment, that's our fault. That's not God's fault. God expects growth. And we need to look at areas in which we can grow. One area, I think, or one list of attributes that we can use for that purpose is found in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7. I know somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute. Man. Those are the qualifications for elders. We're not a, some of us can't even serve as elders, and, and all of us are not going to be elders. Why are you going there? But I want to suggest to you that when you look at the character traits, the character traits that are described in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, please tell me which of those can you say, well, that doesn't apply to me. God doesn't want me to be like that. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Focus on character traits. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife. Temperate. Sober-minded. Of good behavior. Hospitable. Able to teach. 
not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Isn't this a great checklist? Again, we're talking about the character trait. To understand there are some things outside of that status requirement that may not apply to everybody. But when it talks about being sober-minded and being temperate and being self-controlled and being apt to teach and being hospitable, those are things that all Christians are required to do. Would this be a great checklist for your spiritual inventory of your life? How are you in terms of your ability to teach? We do understand that all Christians have an obligation to teach, right? Not just the preacher, not just the elders, not just the deacons. All Christians have an obligation to share the gospel with those around them. How are you doing on that? How is your ability to teach? How much teaching do you do? How do you expect to be proficient in teaching if you never do it? How about your hospitality? Are you inviting people into your home? Are you taking people out for dinners or for lunches? Do you help people out? I mean, this is a great checklist. And ask yourself these questions. Not your family. Not this congregation. But you as an individual. Because we're not going to be judged based on congregation. And we're not going to be judged based on family. We're going to be judged individually. It's a good checklist. Let me give you a, another one along those lines. Galatians 5. Let's go with Galatians 5. These are tools that we can use as we decide if we're growing in Christ. Galatians 5. Look at 22 through 23. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. A great description of the fruits of the Spirit. Again, we ought to take this as spiritual inventory. How are we doing in love? How are we doing in peace? How are we doing in faithfulness? Just take these traits and evaluate yourself and be honest and decide deliberately to grow. And you know what we do in the workforce is we'll have these uh, goals and then we'll have some strategies and we'll have tactics to achieve those goals. Well, if Secular success is that important, and I'm not suggesting it is, but it's important enough for people to routinely evaluate this is the goal, this is how you're performing against the goal, how much more so is spiritual growth important? And how much more so should we be looking at what are the goals, how am I performing against those goals, and how can I develop tactics to make sure that I grow in these areas where I'm deficient? Again, growth is deliberate, intentional, and purposive, and it is a commandment and it's something that God expects from His people. Let me give you a fourth point. The fourth point is this, that spiritual growth, Spiritual growth will prevent us from backsliding into hell. Spiritual growth will prevent us from backsliding into hell. And so we understand, as was said in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that we started this thing being dead in our trespasses. But then we were made alive. And so we were headed for hell, but then we were rescued by our obedience to the gospel through the grace of Jesus Christ. But we all know from studying the Scripture that just because you have been saved doesn't mean you always will be saved. That's a popular doctrine that's taught among some denominations. It's not taught in the Scriptures. You can lose the very salvation uh, that you gain by obeying the Gospel. And so I'm suggesting that spiritual growth can prevent us from losing that salvation. Spiritual growth can prevent us from backsliding into hell. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And we'll read down to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, and read through Hebrews 6, 9. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, read through Hebrews 6, 9. The Bible says this, and having been perfected, he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation 
to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And, and have, you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, on the basis of what's been said before, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on the hands of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Four. It is impossible for those who are once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put into an open shame for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God but if it bears thorns and briars it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. Verse 9, but beloved, we are confident better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation that we speak in this manner. So the writer of Hebrews says that we will, want to tell you some more about Jesus. Jesus the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, but I can't. And I can't not because there's some defect in the message. I can't because of you. You become dull of hearing. And he goes on to explain why they become dull of hearing. These are Christian people, those who have been made alive in Christ, those who have come out of being dead in their trespasses. And he says, look, there's an expectation of growth over time. You see that? Because he says this point, he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need to be taught again the very first principles of Christ. So he says that there's a functionality between time and growth. The longer one is in Christ, the more we should grow. And he says, you've been in Christ long enough that you should be capable of teaching other people. Now here's the shame of it all. Remember, have you stopped growing? They are not where they need to be. They are not able to teach others. And in fact, it's worse than that. He says, not only have you not grown like you should, you have backslid because now you need to be taught the very first principles of Christ. You ought to be a college professor and you're back in kindergarten. That's the way it is. We need to move forward. You can't plateau. We think, oh, I've made it. I've graduated to the adult Bible class. I've got it. I've got this down. No, you've got to continue to grow or you'll find yourself in the same position as these people. And he goes on and says he wants to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, leave the doctrine of baptism, leave the subject, and go on to perfection, mature things. He says, and we'll do that if God permits. It's a conditional thing because you know what? This path that you're on is a dangerous path because if you keep going down this path, he says, you may get to the point where you will not come back to Christ. You cannot be renewed to Christ. You can get that far away. And sometimes, uh, you know, I have a discussion about this verse. I remember being at a, a bookstore, a religious bookstore. And uh, this particular guy I was talking with said, well, you know, it once they've always. And he said, what you believe, as I described what I believe the Bible taught, he said, well, you believe in it, go to salvation. Save one minute, lost the next, save one minute. I said, I'll tell you what. We're here in a religious bookstore. Got tons of Bibles. Let's grab a Bible. And let's look at this verse. The one that talks about if they fall away. And so I had him read it. And I knew about how long the verse was. And I knew about how long it should take for a guy to read it. And he was very quiet. And his head was down. I'm thinking, hmm, take a little extra time. And then finally, he looks up and he says, you know, that, that's a difficult thing. 
No, it's not difficult passage. It's a difficult passage if you believe it's impossible for a Christian person to lose their salvation. Yeah, it's difficult because that's the exact opposite. Because look at the description again. There's no question he's talking about Christian people because he says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. Would you describe an alien sinner as once enlightened? He says, and have tasted the heavenly gift. Again, would you describe an alien sinner as having tasted the heavenly gift? Go on. He says, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Who would describe an alien sinner as having partaken of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come? Again, who would describe an alien sinner as having tasted the good word of God and the powers to come? That's clearly talking about Christian people. And he goes on the next verse and says, if they fall away. So it must be possible for a saved person to lose their salvation. And that's the whole basis for his appeal here. And then he goes on to talk about these people that can get so far gone, he makes an analogy to the earth. He says the earth drinks in the rain and it's cultivated, and if it produces fruit like it should, it'll be blessed. But if it produces briars and thorns, it's rejected. And notice what it says, uh, again, verse 8, whose end is to be burned. It's talking about eternal torment. It's possible for a Christian to get so far away from where they were, they will not come back. Now, here's the silver lining, verse 9. But beloved, but beloved, there's a transition there. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. What is he saying? You haven't got there yet. You're not in this position yet. But you keep down this path of backsliding, of not growing. You're going to find yourself so far away, you will not come back. So that's why I say that spiritual growth can help prevent us from backsliding into hell. Don't just get content. Don't just get complacent. You've always got to be pushing ahead. You've always got to be pushing the envelope. You've always got to be developing yourself. Never be content with where you're at. And, and we'll talk about this in just a little minute. Uh, if you look at the standard, how could we ever be content? <laughs> because the standard is Jesus Christ. So we're always growing. Well, let's talk about some practical aspects of this. How do we grow? I've been convinced that there are some benefits of growth, that God demands growth, that it is a commandment, not an option. We understand that God expects growth because He's put the tools in place for that growth. Uh, we understand that growth can prevent us from backsliding into hell. And of course, as a fundamental principle, we understand that in order to grow, we first be, may, must be made alive. But practically, how do I do it? If I'm sitting here in this audience, I want to grow. How do I do it? First of all, by the pure milk of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1, 3, 1 through 3. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You want to grow, you spend time with the pure milk of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says this, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, why? that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. There is no formula for spiritual growth that can exclude regular, routine Bible study. That's how you grow. He says, you need to not just study, but, oh, I've got to study it. I've got to get prepared for my lesson. You know, some of us, our Bible study consists of just this. Do just enough before the Sunday morning Bible class, just enough before the Wednesday evening Bible class so we don't embarrass ourselves. And that's it. That's not what's talked about in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. It says desire, want, crave the, the milk, the pure milk of God's Word. How? I love this, the illustration. As a newborn babe. As a newborn babe. Have you ever seen that? You ever seen newborn babes that go after that milk? I remember we were in the mall in Birmingham and one of my friends had a newborn babe there. And uh, the baby got a hold of that milk 
And my friend was trying to get the bottle out of his hand, and he couldn't do it. It was like a vice grip because, boy, he was going down on that milk. He really desired that. He enjoyed that. And God says that's the way we need to be about God's Word. We desire it. We want it. And I've talked to people who said, I have a hard time with, or had a hard time with, with wanting to study. I just kind of studied out of necessity. But what I did is I disciplined myself, and I started studying the Word of God, and maybe it would be 10 minutes a day. And all of a sudden I noticed I start doing 20 minutes a day, and then 30 minutes, and maybe take a lunch break. And next thing, one guy was telling me, I want to study the Bible all the time. <laughs> I can barely even get the job done. You see, that, that, you develop that. If you're not there, develop that. Regular routine Bible study. That's how we grow. If you're not growing in Christ, if you're lapsing to the same sin, you're having the same problem, have you tried the Word of God? We need that. It's living. It's powerful. It's alive. Hebrews 4.12. It will cultivate growth. Think about it. God knows our minds. God knows our spirits and souls. And He has designed this book to appeal to those things and produce the fruit that He demands. So we've got to spend time. That's how we do it. Give you a second thing. We need to exercise our senses to discern good and evil. Did you see that over in Hebrews 5, 12 through 14? Where he talked about those who should be teachers, but they're not. And he says, you know what? Your problem is that you're not advanced. You're a babe. Solid food belongs to those who, by reason of use, have exercised their senses to discern good and evil. Maturity. And what maturity does is it develops the ability to know the difference between good and evil, between right and wrong. And let me say this, because it is a hallmark of a mature Christian. A mature Christian doesn't always have to say, have to say or have said in the Bible and express, thou shalt not do this particular activity. A mature Christian has exercised his senses. In other words, he or she has practiced the biblical principles enough. They have developed some awarenesses of these are some things I should not do. These are some places I should not go. These are some activities I should not go to. Like Romans 13, 14. Turn over there. Romans 13, 14. You want to grow, you have to work at it. You have to apply God's Word to your life. And over a period of time, as Hebrews 5 says, you'll develop a sense of what the good and evil is, how to discern that. Romans 13, 14, the Bible says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. The mature Christian understands that principle. You know, the young Christian, and I was there. I was that guy who sat back and Listen to those old preachers, those old fuddy-duddies, and, oh, I can't do this, and can't do that, and where's the specific verse? That doesn't say that, and all that sort of thing. But as you mature, you understand what's going on, this battle between Satan and God, this battle between the man of flesh and the man of spirit. And you understand, you don't put yourself willingly in harm's way. You don't put yourself in situations that you're going to be tempted. Have some wisdom. We all know, again, if we're doing that spiritual inventory, we know our strengths and we know our weaknesses. And you better be very keenly aware of your weaknesses. And because of those weaknesses, guess what? There's some places you may not be able to go. And there may be perfectly fine places for other people to go. You can't go. Why? Because you know the problem it poses for you. Don't make provision for the flesh. Many of us just invite the devil in. Just say, come on, we kind of put a four-course meal, we got the table spread. Come on, devil. In our recreation, we say, well, we hear this stuff all the time in the workplace and, and, and in the mall when we go places. But are you going to willingly pump that stuff into your home through the television and the music and the books that you read? Just invite the devil in. Come on. No, don't make provision for the lust of the flesh. Know yourself. Know God's Word. Know the things that we ought to avoid. There's just some places we don't need to go. And it's okay if you don't see the latest and greatest movies. That's okay. You know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you're not going to be worried about that. And I tell you, you're definitely not going to be worried about that on the other side of the grave. That's okay. We're a little funny. We're a little bit different. We're not hip. We don't know. That's, that's fine. What are we trying to do? We're trying to go to heaven. There's no heaven on earth. We're not, we'll talk a little bit more about this in the next hour. 
We're not concerned about what people, we're concerned about what God thinks and what God knows. Let me give you another point. If you want to practically grow, not only do we need to have the sincere or pure milk of God's Word, not only do we need to exercise our senses to discern good and evil, we have to apply the right standard. We hinted at this a while ago. We have to apply the right standard. Don't be like some, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter and the 12th verse. The Bible says, For we, we dare not, class ourselves, or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Paul says, these Judaizing teachers, these guys who want to be seen as apostles, they're comparing themselves with themselves. They're measuring themselves by themselves. He said, that's the wrong standard. When I was preparing for the bar exam, I remember talking to some older guys who had passed the bar and of course, you're always nervous because your livelihood depends upon your ability to pass this test. And so I remember one of the guys said, look, here's, here's what you do. You know a few lawyers. You pick out that lawyer, you know who I'm talking about, that you can look over at him and say, now, if he passed the bar, I know I can pass the bar. And I did that. I found that guy. And it was encouraging. Uh, and that may be appropriate in that context. It's not appropriate in the Lord's church. I can't say, now, I may not be all I should be, but I know I know more than him. And I know I know more than her. And I know I'm more godly than she. That's the wrong standard. We don't compare ourselves with ourselves. It doesn't matter if you think you're the best at all these things. That's not the standard. The standard is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21-24. through 24. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21-24. Use the proper standard. 1 Peter 2, 21-24. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. Listen, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sin might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. He said, whose steps are we to follow? The steps of Jesus Christ. He says, that's our example. That's the standard. Don't look across the aisle. Look up. And if you measure yourself against Jesus, that, that's a quick antidote to pride. <laughs> we'll be done with that. <laughs> There'll be no, oh, I think I'm something. And in fact, Jesus makes that point, Luke 17, 10. He says, and you, when you have done all that's been commanded, all you can simply say is we're unprofitable servants. We've simply done what was our duty to do. <laughs> I love that. If you do everything, you can't be proud. You're still unprofitable. And you've done simply and only what you should have done in the first place. There's no room for pride in God's kingdom. Quit looking around and saying, measuring ourselves with one another and measure ourselves against who committed no sin or with the seat found in his mouth. And there's a sin. So those are some practical things about growth. And I want to leave you with this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, 14 through 30, the Bible says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man striving to a far country, called his own servants, and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. Remember that. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them. Made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with him. So, 
he had received the five talents, came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I'll make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you'd be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have abundance, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we have the three servants that are entrusted with talent, money. One man that was given five talents. Remember, all of this distribution of money was done, what? According to their own ability. And so he makes a judgment, the master, that this servant can handle five. So he gives them five. Another servant gets two, and a third servant gets one. Now the master goes away. Now what are they supposed to do with those talents? They're supposed to trade and make more. They're supposed to take that money and return on the Lord's investment. And that's exactly what happens for two of them. The man with five talents goes and trades, makes five more, has ten total. The man with two goes and trades, has two more, has four total. But the one, instead of going out and doing something with it, or at least putting it in the bank so you get interest, he just hides it in the ground. And when there's the settling up, notice what is said to the five and the two-talent man. It's remarkable to me. The same exact thing. Go back and read verses 21 23. No difference in what is said. Why is that remarkable? Because from my standpoint, as a secular standpoint, I would say, well, uh, the ten-talent man or five-talent man that gives me ten, you're doing a fantastic job. Great. The four-talent... That's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's not as good as ten, but it's pretty good. And yet the Lord said the same thing to both of them. Why? Because he had given each according to his ability, and each one of those did the same thing. They did the most of what they were given. They did the same thing. And I like that, because what it tells me is the Lord has given us all different talents and abilities and experience. I'm not being measured against you. What I'm measured against is what the Lord gave me and what he expects me to do. He expects me, as we talked about yesterday and last night, to do the best that we can. And the point that I want to make from this service in the context of the question of how do you stop growing is that the Lord has done everything on his part to cultivate growth. And what we need to do by the end of time we stand before Jesus in judgment is we need to give the Lord a return on his investment. It's not enough for us to give back what the Lord gave to us. The Lord expects us to do more and to do better. The same way he expected those servants to trade and get more. And so look at your life and ask yourself, what have I done with what God has given to me? Have I developed my talents, my abilities? Don't tell me you don't have any. Don't tell me you can't do it. No, everybody has something they can do. And each according to our ability. You're not being judged based on Greg Wynn. You're not being judged based on anybody else. You're being judged based on what God gave you. You do the best you can and return on the Lord's investment. Thank you for your time and for your attention.